Um, but if you would, uh, join me in prayer and before we continue this morning. Oh, loving God, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for uh, the gift of joy and laughter. And thank you for the way that you've uniquely made each and every one of us in this room. You look down on us, you look among us and with us, and you delight in just the sheer fact that we exist. So we thank you for making us, and thank you for this community. Uh, Lord, I just uh, want to lift up those who aren't with us today for whatever uh, those reasons are, whether it be health or just life circumstances. Uh, Lord, I ask that you be uh, the king of peace. Lord, I pray for those in our lives that don't yet know you and follow you. I just pray that you give us the wisdom and the words to be a light um, in the world. Be with this message today, and may it be a blessing to those who hear. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, One of the uh, things that we have invited uh, you into over this series is to join a group that we've called uh, 90. Uh, You can text the keyword 90 to our texting number on the back of your bulletin. There's information on that current series right on the bottom, right above prayer. And if you text that from your phone, you can get kind of midweek prompts and ways for you to kind of dig deeper into this journey that we're on. And our hopes is that as you come to worship and as you engage with the text and the story of Jesus, that this Easter you might experience the cross and the resurrection in a new way, that you might fall more in love with Jesus. Or maybe, maybe uh, in this room there are some of you who haven't yet really discovered who Jesus is and that you would fall in love with him for maybe the first time. So we ask you to join us in that. Um, But this morning we're going to talk about temptation. And um, I was thinking about temptation and, like, what tempts me? Like, when I use the word, like, that's tempting or don't tempt me. And, um, but when I think about it, it usually isn't um, a bad, like, a bad thing. It doesn't seem bad. Things that tempt me seem very good, right? They seem very pleasing. Um, when the word temptation is tied to an action, it's usually an invitation to embrace self-interest. Have you ever thought about this? Like when you're tempted to do something, it's always from the perspective that it will benefit me somehow. It'll make me feel good or make me look good. And we're probably not really tempted to be selfless, right? I'm never like tempted to share my cake with you. Like that's not a temptation. I mean, I might because I'm a good person, but I'm not tempted to share my cake with you. And I probably wouldn't because I'm not that good of a person. But um, but when you think about that, like we, the things that tempt us usually are in our self-interest. Like if we give up time on a Saturday to help someone move because you have a truck, you know that's like the reason you have a truck, so that your friends know that they can call on you to help them move their things. That's why we don't have one. Again, not very good people. Um, no, but temptation for some of us in this room, for many of us in this room, is the result of self-interest, an invitation to embrace it. And oftentimes, in pursuit of my selfish self-interest, I can hurt others. I can hurt myself. And then Jesus comes along, and he's brilliant, and he says, not only if you live this self-centered life, if you make this life all about you, in the end, you'll not only hurt others, you'll not only hurt yourself, you'll actually lose yourself. And he was so right in that. We're so right in that. And the reason we're here today and the reason we follow Jesus is to learn another way. During this message series, we're learning that Jesus came into the world to introduce something brand new to 
and for the world. Throughout this series, we're going to come back to this theme that Jesus introduces something brand new. And specifically, he would introduce three things. He would introduce a new covenant, which is a new arrangement between God and humanity. It would replace the old covenant that was between God and one single nation. And then he would come with a new command, a single love-centered command. And he would bring about a new movement, which is the church. And from the moment Jesus stepped into this world, those who were tied to this old way of living, the old covenant that was like entrenched in Greco-Roman ways, the the world of the, the kingdoms of this world, those whose fortunes were tied to the success and profiting from that, Jesus would speak against that, and these people would resist. And we'll see the tension throughout his whole life. This is the kingdom that Jesus was coming to establish. Not Judaism 2.0, not the second half of a book. This was something completely new for the world. So last week, if you were with us, if you weren't with us, I'm going to give you a little bit of recap to catch you up so you don't feel lost. We talked about John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus. And he drew this really large crowd to the Jordan River. And once he got them there, had all their attention. And then Jesus comes and then he turns the attention. It's kind of like he says, you know, will the real Messiah please stand up? Please stand up. Please stand up. You know you want to sing. Um, he, said, he points them to Jesus. He says, let me have your attention. I'm not the one you've come to see. It's him. And he says to his people, he says, look, not trust me, not imagine if the real Messiah were here, but he says to this large group, look, you can see him. Look, he's there, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not just the sins of our people, of the Jewish people, but of the Gentiles, of everyone. And then Jesus asks John to baptize him, which was really upside down. And John the Baptist is like, I probably embarrassed because he just told all these people he wasn't even worthy to untie the sandals, tie the sandals of Jesus. But Jesus says, no, no, no. No, I need to be baptized by you. And um, it was uncomfortable for him. It was a new way. And if you aren't familiar with the story of this, um, Jesus is baptized. He comes out of the water. And now we like... He, it's official, like he's now, like, they know who he is, right? They haven't seen any miraculous acts. He hasn't done anything yet, but he comes out of the water, and he's just a guy, and they know he's special. And I'm sure they're like, you know, like, what's, what's going to happen, you know? And then in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke, they each say that immediately, he immediately followed his baptism. He was led into the wilderness, they actually says that God led him into the wilderness. I mean, it's like, ta-da, here's Jesus. And then he's like, and peace, I'll be back, right? And then he goes into the wilderness all by himself for 40 days. The text says in Matthew, it says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, another word for devil is diabolos, which means diabolical, slanderer, or accuser. Use the word devil here. And I want to pause for a minute uh, and to point out this, this part of the story, this use of the word devil. Because if you grew up in the church, many of us in this room grew up in the church, you might hear that and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know how this whole story ends, right? And then maybe there are some people in this room who say, this whole devil thing, I'm not sure I totally buy. So, like, you want to tune me out. So I just want to just for just a minute, talk about how cool it is that, that all three accounts of 
of this story use this word devil. Because in ancient literature, whenever you read something in ancient literature, you should pay attention because the truth is there wasn't a lot of literature in that time. Not a lot of things were being written down. They didn't have a printing press. They didn't have the role of into the old covenant as a Jew in order to be a bridge into this new way. So he leans into that in order to introduce the new covenant. And he says this, and he quotes the Old Testament. He says, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Now, this is from Deuteronomy 8. So he's going back to the scriptures where the nation of Israel is traveling through the wilderness, and they have nothing to eat, and then God provides manna from heaven. You've heard, some of you, many have heard this story. And God's teaching his people that this daily dependence on him. Just trust in God daily, and I will provide your daily bread. And then he says, and Jesus says, but, but uh, a man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Basically, he's saying, I'm not going to act independently on my own, apart from God. I'm, I'm going to lean in to my Heavenly Father. I'm not going to just lean on my own behalf, because that is the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world say, You just look out for you, yourself, and I. It's just about you. Temptation is always an invitation to act on our own behalf. And then it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now, as I was preparing for this this week, I was struck by this phrase, the devil took him. Because I don't know about you, but when I envision this story, I envision like, like Satan is like tempting and he's like mean and like angry and like, uh, you know, but I, I, I don't know. It was like um, they walked somewhere, like they were hanging out together. And it says he took him, um, like it wasn't like an instant, like beat me up, Scotty, or he didn't like just vaporize and just go to the next spot. I mean, it was, he was like a, on a walk, on a journey. Luke's gospel says that the devil brought him there. So they spent time in the wilderness walking together, and they went to some high place where they could oversee this massive, beautiful temple. I think, what was that walk like? If you think about temptation, it's always presented as desirable. And so, like, what was it like to be with the devil? You know, temptation is seductive, beautiful at times. Maybe, like, they were enjoying each other's company. I mean, I don't know. Don't say that. But, I mean, what if? But it's got me thinking. How many things in our lives do we spend time with that are temptations that seem good and beautiful and seductive? that ultimately lead to our hurt and our destruction. So they get to this, this high space, and the tempter says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. He's like, all these people will see you, and they'll notice you, and you could just like pick yourself up and you know, wipe the dust off, and then they'd really believe. And then the devil starts quoting scriptures. He's like, ah, I know scripture too. He says, for it For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And the devil's quoting this from Psalm 91, which basically says the same thing. He's like, you know, two can play that game. I can quote scripture too. And see, it even says, God's not going to let something bad happen, you know? So just like, 
you do trust him, right? So throw yourself down, and then God will take care of you. And in this moment, he's tempting Jesus to do what so many of us do, and that is that we try to use God or presume on God. Unfortunately, this is a modern view of faith, a faith that many of us in this room are brought up with, a faith that some of you have actually chosen to leave. Maybe a faith that if you believe this, maybe you should leave. Faith says that just if you believe these things, then you will receive. If you can conjure, you know, manipulate God into doing this, then, you know, you'll uh, get what you want. If you believe enough, if you quote a verse, you know, God's got to come through for you. And Jesus answers, he says, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to test. So Jesus is quoting Moses. Um, He's addressing the nation of Israel when they're on their way to the promised land. People said to Moses, you know, God has to do such and such for us. You know, God owes us. We're his special people. And Moses says, "Uh, you don't understand. You are God's chosen people. But God doesn't have to do anything. And you do not manipulate. And you do not. And you cannot manipulate God. And the point here, and we'll move on in just a minute, but the hard truth and the difficult truth for so many of us to swallow is that if you're a Christian, the minute you try to manipulate God, the moment you look for a magic formula, magic bullet, magic prayer, the moment you think, if I do, if I do these three things consistently, then God has to do something for me. It's in that moment that you're practicing magic, like superstition. This is not how God does things. Unfortunately, we've been told that, and many of us have believed that, and therefore had our hearts totally broken and disappointed by God because we could, he wouldn't do exactly what we told him to do. He never promised to do that. Your religion has then become superstition that looks just like the pagan superstitions that Jesus came to replace. Your religion has become kingdoms of this world religion. So we can kind of predict our, you know, we work hard enough. We can do a lot of our life without Jesus. So later on, Jesus would say to the crowds that gather around him, he'd say, you know, hey, look, when you think of God, God is not this like high king in heaven who's like sitting on his throne with his arms crossed just waiting for you to bring enough offerings and prayers and good deeds and generosity to get his attention. That's not what he's doing. He cannot be bribed. When you think of God from now on, think of this perfectly, perfect heavenly father who already knows everything you need. He doesn't need to be talked into something. He just wants you to come to him and simply ask. So, those are the two first temptations, which he passed, which is Jesus. And then he gets to the third one, and I think this is a really big one for us to learn today. So, if you think about this, the devil and Jesus have spent some time together, days, weeks, we don't know how much time. But here's the third temptation in the list of these three. But before we go there, I want us to think about something. And I have a question. Why are powerful people so inclined to just go off the rails? 
You ever thought, like, why people hold so much power, so inclined to go off the rails morally, ethically, financially? You know, if you think about it, it just, we think that the more power a person has, the better the person should be. I mean, what is it? What's behind bullying and entitlement and sexual harassment and arrogance and dismissiveness and elitism and extravagant consumerism? I think a lot of it boils down to greed, our own self-interest. I know we often think, you know, if I had more power or influence or wealth, I would be the best version of myself ever. I'd be a better person. Why is it that more money equals more problems? You know, why is it that that isn't the case? Why are there so few stories of power and wealth making people better? I mean, there are some, right? But here's why we should follow Jesus, because Jesus taught, and then he modeled how to live, right? He taught it, and then he showed us what it looked like. He taught that power is not primarily for the benefit of the powerful. He taught and modeled something so new in the first century that this power is not primarily for the benefit of the powerful. And no one had heard such a thing. And I know they're probably thinking, Jesus, if you're going to get anything done and do this whole new thing you're talking about, uh, you're going to start this movement, you're going to need to leverage your power because you're the son of God. Um, So this thing you're talking about, it's not going to work unless you do it. And Jesus is like, oh, man, we're going to do this backwards. (laughs) We're going to do this like a totally upside down way. And he also taught that wealth is not primarily for the benefit of the wealthy. He consistently talked. I mean, Jesus talked at length about power and money. And he said that wealth and the stewardship of wealth, all of it belongs to his Father in heaven. And wealth is just like power. It's a test. It's a test to see how well you'll do, not based on how you spend it on yourself, but how generous you will become. That that generosity, that determines if you can be trusted with more of it later. And very few people succeeded in that. And I know what you're thinking. I'll take the test. Sign me up. (laughs) Right? Give me a shot. The truth is, by the virtue of you sitting in this room right now, or if you're on Facebook Live, or you're listening to the podcast, you are already taking the test. 70, 80, 90% of the entire world already considers you wealthy. And you think what I think, like, well, I'm kind of like in the middle, lower end. I mean, there's a lot of other people who have a lot more than I do. They're the rich ones. And Jesus would say throughout his entire ministry, he'd say, hold up, what's in your hand? Who do you think that's for? And we're so tempted, like, but I deserved it. I worked so hard. I want it, you know. But he says, and he'll consistently say, that thing in your hand, if you think that it's just for you, that's kingdom of this world minded. That's the way the world has always worked one's own self-interest, but Jesus came to introduce something new, upside down, and he teach that influence is not primarily for the benefit of the individual. He would just say, it is about the other. And it's such a battle. His entire ministry, he would be tempted up until his last night on earth to go to the kingdoms of this world way, 
and take what is rightfully his. And this final interaction with the devil is where we see it all uh, uh, culminate here. It says that, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He showed Jesus the view of Jerusalem and all of Jericho, lit up at night and sparkling and twinkling in all of its splendor and all the kingdoms of this world. I mean, now we have like Google Earth, but they didn't have that then, so I don't know how that happened, but like I can imagine just this big view of like all this world. And it's like as if the tempter said, feast your eyes on this. Look at all this, the epicenter of it all. You know, everyone is in this space waiting on God to fulfill his promises, waiting for the Messiah. And isn't this what every human wants, to be admired and and adored and worshipped and influential and powerful? And the devil has dominion over the kingdoms of this world. He has the power over the kingdoms of this world. And he was handing them to Jesus on a silver platter, and he says, all this I will give you. Isn't that what you want? And all you have to do, all you have to do is bow down and worship me. Just acknowledge that it's mine to give and take what you are entitled to. You're entitled to it, Jesus. You can have it. Just worship me. I mean, who refuses what is rightfully theirs? I mean, you can think of people probably in your life that have done that, and they're the people that you admire the people that you respect, the people who would give up their own self-interest for others. So the point here is Jesus didn't come to barter for a kingdom. He came to establish a kingdom in the hearts of women and men. He didn't come to barter for land. He didn't come to barter for Jerusalem and Jericho, he came to barter for the landscape of the heart. A kingdom where the king lays down his life, his power, his wealth, his influence for his subjects. An upside-down kingdom. There had never been such a thing. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He says, No. No, away. And it says the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Luke writes, when the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. In other words, I'm not finished with you yet. I'll be back. While you're walking on this planet, I will be back. to try to convince you to opt into the kingdoms of this world. So then the text tells us that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. And just for fun, maybe, or perhaps to spite the devil, instead of turning a stone into bread, Jesus went to a wedding and turned water into wine. Why? Because his mom asked him to do it. And maybe that's the lesson. Say yes to your mama and no to the devil. I don't know. Um, But for real, for real, Jesus early on was offered on some level what we all want. But he refused it because he did not come, even though he could, he did not come to take over, but he came to take away the sins of the world. 
and he didn't come to lord over, which he could, but to get under the burden of mankind. And there's a story toward, his, toward the end of his time on this earth where he sits his followers down because they're still not totally getting it. And even though he had taught and he had modeled this way, this new kingdom, this new movement, over and over, they had a hard time wrapping their heads around this idea. And they're still thinking, you know, we understand the way of the world. We understand leadership, like top-down hierarchy. We, we understand authority. We understand the kingdoms of this world, but we just don't understand what you're talking about because it just doesn't make sense to us, right? And then Jesus says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as ransom for many. Even the Son of Man came to serve and give his life for ransom for many. We aren't going to do this the kingdom of earth way, the me first, the self-interest way. I know it's all you see, it's all you know, but there's a new and a better way, and I'm not going to back down, and I believe it so much that I will model it for you until my very last breath. And regardless of what you believe in this room today, regardless of your faith background, regardless if you are a part of another faith community, regardless if you truly believe this or not, it doesn't matter what you believe in this space, Jesus valued you more than any kingdom of this world. Do you realize what hung in the balance of his decision to resist the ways of the kingdom of the world? You. You hung in the balance. Regardless of how much power you have or don't have, you do not have the power to overcome the consequences of your sin. Regardless of how much money you have or how much money you don't have, money won't heal a broken relationship or get you forgiveness from someone. Regardless of your influence, you do not have the power to reverse the consequences of sin in your life. The kingdoms of this world do not affect the human heart and soul like the kingdom of God. That power is held and housed in Jesus. And do you know what hangs in the balance of your decision to resist embracing the self-centered ways of the kingdoms of this world? You do. You hang in the balance. Luke writes, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? We are tempted every single day to live our whole lives for ourselves. More power, more wealth, more influence, more things. If I have more, my life will be better. But you know what happens when we seek after our own self all, all the time? That we don't get better, we get smaller. You know? And we're here today because of a king who outlasted his own life. He outlasted his own generation. And he's invited us into a life and we can do the same and have a bigger and better story than one we could conjure up on our own. So this new upside-down kingdom where the first would be last and the last would be first, power will be leveraged for the powerless. Wealth will be leveraged for those in need. And influence, influence will be leveraged for those without a voice. But this new way will not sit well with the people that Jesus came in contact with. You know, we naturally resist what we don't understand. 
And the people in Jesus' time, they did the same thing. And the temple and the empire would conspire together to crush Jesus. And they would succeed momentarily, but in the end, they would be overcome. But until we get to that story, there are more sermons to preach, and there's more healing to learn about, and more to learn about Jesus. So let's pray. Oh God, we thank you so much for teaching and modeling for us your view, your vision for the kingdom of God. Thank you for giving us your word written. Thank you for the gift of your love. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his selfless way. God, as we sit here and wonder, how do we live in the kingdom, in your kingdom? How do we have dual citizenship in both, Lord? God, we ask that you surround us with people who can hold us up. Surround us with people who want to walk in the same way, who want to follow you, Lord. Lord, give us eyes to see the needs around us. Give us a spirit of generosity, of others-centered. Lord, if we struggle with, with manipula- manipulating you, uh, God, I just pray that you um, give us opportunities to hear your voice, to silence ours and listen for you. God, I don't know what you're doing in the lives of each person in this room, but I know that we are not here by accident. So I pray that the words that were spoken today be heard in the spirit in which they were intended. Lord, we just thank you for loving us. We thank you for this space. In Jesus' name.